Everything that God said, thought, and does is right and perfect because He is absolutely holy. And if we've been born again, He calls us to share in that character. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We move into chapter 6 today in our study of the Revelation. Having been introduced to the seven-sealed scroll in the previous chapter, today we see Jesus begin to break the seals and unravel this unbound book or scroll. And in the first two verses, we find a white horse, which Dr. Brogy will note today is the white horse of deception. Would you take the Word of God this morning and turn to Revelation chapter 6 as we begin a new chapter on the horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, the Bible is very clear that the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. And after the church is removed, a seven-year-plus period is going to begin, and it's going to be a time on earth like the world has never seen or experienced before. It is so terrible, so frightening, so horrible that you might think I'm exaggerating. But Jesus, who is incarnate truth, said this, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Now, Jesus could never exaggerate. Everything he said was absolutely true. And that's an incredible prophecy that he makes when you consider all the holocausts, all the famines, all the diseases, all the earthquakes, all the hurricanes, all the tsunamis that have come across our world. When you think of all the atrocities that have taken place in human history since the creation of Adam and Eve, and yet Jesus said you can take all of that and it doesn't even begin to compare to what is in front of us. The prophet Jeremiah, speaking of this time frame, said, ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress, the time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah reminds us that the tribulation period will be so bad that men will wrap their arms around themselves like a, a woman giving birth, and that everyone's face will turn pale and ashen gray because the events that are going to take place are so utterly horrible. And of course, in that context, he's relating them not just to the world, but also to the nation of Israel. In Daniel, the 12th chapter, we studied it. The prophet Daniel were given these words by Michael, the archangel, and there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, speaking of Israel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. So what we begin today in the sixth chapter of the Revelation all the way through the 19th chapter really pictures a time of unspeakable horror. Now, for the benefit of those joining us for the first time and for the rest of us, because I want you to be able to think your way all the way through Revelation, that when we are done with the book of Revelation, you can walk through in your mind chapter by chapter. And if there's any book you'd like to get under your belt, it ought to be this one, because God promises a special blessing 
for those who would hear and heed the book of the Revelation. Now, we've seen in Revelation 1-7 that the theme of the book is He is coming with the clouds. And we've also learned that the outline of the book is given to us by God, I think largely so we would not misinterpret the book. Revelation 1-19, therefore write the things which you have seen, that's the past, the things that are, that's the present, the present day as John was living. And so he writes of seven literal actual churches that were in existence and functioning. And then he says, and the things which will take place after these things. So starting in chapter 4 all the way through 22, the Apostle Paul writes about the things that will take place, the Apostle John, after these things. And so notice how chapter 4 and verse 1 begins after these things, just so we couldn't miss it, that this is the third section of the Revelation. After these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. When we're in the fourth chapter, we saw that open door that this is the time that God will call up the church. I saw a door open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So when the church is brought up through that open door into heaven, all the way through the rest of the Revelation, you see a picture of what will happen after the rapture of the church. We saw the 24 elders, that that was a representative number used in other places in Scripture of a mass of people. So it's not by accident that God describes 24 elders who are representative of the raptured church. And so from chapters 6 through 19... Other than the fact that there are saints in heaven, believers who are able to view what God is unfolding in heaven, the church is not mentioned. The seven churches of the Revelation are gone, and you do not see the church again until Jesus comes back in glory. Remember, the rapture and the second coming, second coming of Christ are two distinct events. It is possible for you to not be ready and to miss the rapture. It is impossible for you to miss the second coming of Christ. One, we meet the Lord in the air. He will come for us. I go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you again to myself, that where I am, you may be. That's the rapture. But at the second coming, he comes to the earth, literally to the Mount of Olives, where he will rule and reign for a thousand years. So in chapter four, we saw God the Father sitting on the throne. We saw heaven filled with praises to Him for His glory, for His power, for His creation, but also an acknowledgement that He has the right to administer justice as the judge of the world. And so John is taken to heaven, and he's given a front row seat. And if you know Christ today, you'll be there with John. He is picturing what is actually happening in the future. And if you are a believer, then you will be raptured and you will literally see those events unfold. And so chapter 5, we move from God the Father on the throne. We're still in the same courtroom, but we also see the Lamb, Jesus, standing at the right hand of the Father. And if you were with us in our last three sessions of the Revelation, we saw that it's just been glorious, God's people worshiping with the angels in heaven. Chapter 5 signals us that a change is about to happen. Look at 5 and verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now remember, we identified the Father as the one sitting on the throne, and he has in his hand 
a scroll, as the NASB puts in the margin. It's not a book like you're holding. It's a scroll. It's no ordinary scroll. It is a seven-sealed scroll. It's what, what you might call the title deed of the world. It's like a last will and testament that people would write in the first century. They were distinguished as seven-seal scrolls. Verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? Now, we've seen that God originally planned for Adam to rule and reign the earth, but through his disobedience, he lost that right to rule. And so, the God of this world with a small g, as 2 Corinthians 4, 4 designates him, is the evil one, Satan. And so, it is a real legitimate offer that Satan makes Jesus in the wilderness when he says, you bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. Satan temporarily has control of them. And so he sees this title deed to the earth, and he wants to know who is worthy. And John's perception is he doesn't know who can take that title deed. And so he begins to weep uncontrollably. But then the Father hands the deed to God the Son, who with his own blood redeemed not only every born-again, blood-bought child of God, though He made a provision for all, but He also redeemed the creation that fell when man fell. This world, as beautiful as it is in some places, is not the way God originally intended it. And we've seen some of that in the last week by some of the climactic events that are taking place on the planet. So this is a seven-sealed scroll. We saw not a scroll with seven seals all on the outside, but you undo a seal, you unroll it, you undo another seal, you unroll it, and it is progressively unfolded. And that's very important as we come later to the trumpet and the bold judgments. So chapters 6 through 19 are a picture of what Revelation 6 calls the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6 is somewhat of a shock to the senses because we move from this scene in heaven where there's all this praising and shouting to a scene on the earth of divine wrath where there is pain and suffering. So chapter 6 begins the scenes of judgment with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Let's read about the four horsemen by reading the first eight verses. Follow along. Then I saw the Lamb. I saw the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice, come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another. And a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quarter of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. And Hades was following with him. Authority was given to, him, to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, and with pestilence by the wild beasts of the earth. Now, beginning with these eight verses, we have the first four of the seven seals in this scroll that has been handed to Christ. And he begins to unfold them one at a time. 
These seals are broken and opened, and judgments come upon the earth. Now, the first six seals take place in the first half of the tribulation period. The tribulation, both by Daniel the prophet, by Jesus, and by the revelation, is broken into two even halves of three and a half years each. Let me give you kind of the big schematic. If you'll bring up the next slide right now, we're in the church age. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. Jesus said, I will build my church. The church is a unique entity that the Bible teaches began on the day of Pentecost. But the church age will end when the church is raptured. Some people say, well, the word rapture is not found in the Bible. It is in the Latin Bible. It's from the Greek, from the Latin word rapto, the Latin Bible used for over a thousand years. For the most part, about the only translation that God's people had. And so the church is caught up. I don't care if you call it the rapture, the harpazo, the catching up. We shall all be caught up. It's the word rapture. And shortly after, a seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation period begins. The first half is tribulation. The second half is even greater tribulation. But all seven years, we will see in the sixth chapter, are called the Great Tribulation period. It culminates with the second coming. Jesus will literally rule and reign for a thousand years. And at the end of the millennium, what the second Adam does that the first Adam should have done, we will enter into the eternal state. Now, the world that God's, that the, the world that the people will be in after the rapture will be a world without Christians. Now, there are saints who come to faith during the tribulation. They're not church saints. We will see they are tribulation saints. And most of them are actually martyred during that seven-year time frame in history. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, come. Now the Lamb here in verse 1, whom we studied in chapter 5, is none other than the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so John uniquely uses the expression, the Lamb, to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. So he takes the seven-sealed scroll, seven sealed scroll. And we are told when he broke the first of the seven uh, seals, John writes, I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, come. I hope you remember the four living creatures. We were first introduced to them in chapter 4 and then again in chapter 5. Now, if you look back at chapter 4, turn back a page or so, chapter 4 in verse 6, notice what we are told. And before the throne... There was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. This is one of those places where it seems like human vocabulary fails. And John is trying to describe that awesome shimmering floor there in the throne room of God. He says it is like, he uses a simile, it is like crystal. And of course, a good architect will often put a, a fountain or a pool of water in front of a, a building to immediately grab your attention and reflecting during the day to double its beauty and to light it up and to multiply it at night. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The old King James says four beasts. The new King James says four living creatures like most of the translations you have in your lap. This is not some hideous beast like the Antichrist. In fact, there's an entirely distinctly different word that's translated beast that's used to describe him. These are four zoa, four living creatures. 
And of course, they are also described in the prophet Ezekiel, the first chapter, where there they are called cherubim. Cherubim, much like angels today, other angels, there's a lot of different classes of angels, they can change their appearance at will. An angel could be uh, worshiping with us. We know in the invisible realm, 1 Corinthians 11, there's angels that are here today. They're watching you. They're learning. Our audience is a lot bigger than most of us realize. But it's possible that there could be an angel sitting near you, that you will greet one today before the day is over, that we can entertain angels unaware. But there's one class of high angels that are known as cherubim. Look at Revelation 4, verse 7. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had the face of that of a man, and the fourth creature like that of a flying eagle. These four living creatures, remember, are going to administer the first four seals of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. If you don't have it written out there, next to verse 7, write Ezekiel 1, 10, and 11. Ezekiel 1, 10, and 11. There the prophet said, as for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man, all four had the face of a lion, on the right and on the face, and on the right, and the face of a bull on the left. All four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. So both Ezekiel and John, and again, they can manifest themselves in different ways, but we see a consistency that these class of angels had the face of a lion, an ox, an eagle, or a man. And those faces are associated with God's dealing with uh, humans in this world. Eyes symbolize discernment or knowledge in Scripture. Wings symbolize the, the great speed that these angelic creatures can travel. Faces symbolize various qualities in God's creation. And the lion speaks of power. And we also saw that these are the four banners around the tabernacle that God's people, Israel, uh, camped around, and these four pictures are given in the four Gospels of Christ. You might want to go back and listen to that message. Look at verse 8 now of Revelation 4. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. In one word, what is God like? He is holy. Isaiah 6.3, when he has a vision of God, he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And that's what John is saying here. He's watching these four living creatures affirm the absolute holiness of God. Why three times? Because we've seen this was a Trinitarian scene in this throne room. We saw God the Father sitting on the throne, God the Son at His right hand, and the seven spirits, which are the seven spirits of God, the seven ministries of God the Spirit. Holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit. And if there's anything that will grip you, that will grab you when you go to heaven, initially it will be the absolute holiness of God. We teach our children that sin is anything that you say, do, or think that is contrary to God's will. We should equally teach them that everything that God said, thought, and does is right and perfect because He is absolutely holy. And if we've been born again, He calls us to share in that character. So here in Revelation 6, verse 1, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a voice of thunder, come. 
This voice of thunder is a voice of, of majesty and power, and it speaks with great authority. And when the Lamb breaks the first seal, this the noise of thunder, some of your translations say, I prefer more literally the voice of thunder because it's more than just noise. It, it speaks a truth that God wants His people there in heaven to see and to appreciate. Just like thunder comes before a great storm, this is heavenly thunder. And there is a storm that is coming that is about to be unleashed like the world has never, ever seen. And so the first of these four living creatures steps out and he gives this command, come with this voice of authority. And the first seal releases the first rider of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, some have carelessly identified the first horseman as the Lord Jesus himself because you will see in Revelation 19, Jesus coming back on a white horse. So they assume this is one and the same. No, this is not the Lord Jesus. We will see this is the Antichrist. And so there are five characteristics that are given to this person or that describe this person that are very different from that of the Lord Jesus. If you're taking notes, the first concerns the weapon of the white horse rider. Let's think first about the weapon of the white horse rider. We read here in verse 2, I looked, and behold, a white horse... And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. So we're told the horse is white, and the rider is armed with a bow, and he's wearing a crown. So who is he? Well, the question has been debated for centuries, and unfortunately, very often the prerequisites and the preconceptions that you approach the book of Revelation will typically determine who you think this rider is. So let me pause for a moment, and I want you to pay attention. You are all theologians. The question is, what kind of a theologian are you? Every, every one of us have a theology of God, a knowledge of God. It's either right or it's inaccurate. And so there were no seminaries in the early centuries of the church. The church, the local church, was a seminary where God's people learned and I want you to learn this morning. So, in the history of the church, there have been four approaches to the revelation. I briefly hit on this on the introduction, but I'm going to take time and hone it today because you're going to hear people sometimes teach the book of Revelation. You're going to say, where did they get that from? And they get it from a prerequisite in their theology that they begin with. The principles that someone uses for interpreting the Bible is called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is how you interpret the Bible. And so, um, when you read various uh, commentaries on Revelation, the principle on how they interpret apocalyptic literature and times literature will determine what they're going to say. Now, John Calvin is an interesting man. You'll meet him in heaven, I have no doubt. But he was a confused little man on a lot of issues. And I know I've made some of my Reformed brothers mad in saying that. Interestingly, John Calvin wrote a commentary, and I have his full set, and I have his institutes, and I've read them. They don't just sit on my shelf. Calvin wrote a book, a commentary on every book of the Bible except the Revelation, because he really didn't know what to do with it. 
And part of his problem is he used one principle for interpreting the rest of the Bible, but he used a different principle for interpreting the end times literature. And you can see some of these differences in two popular authors, one by the name of Tim LaHaye. Many of you know his name. He recently, in the last year, went to heaven in his 90s. The other is Hank Hanegraaff. Tim LaHaye left the, wrote the Left Behind series describing the rapture of the church and those who are left behind. He understood that the events in the Revelation were future. Hank Hanegraaff wrote a book called The Apocalypse Code. Sometimes people call me on the Bible line and they say, well, what do you think of The Apocalypse Code? And of course, there's about 10 books by that title. So the question is, you know, which Apocalypse Code are you referring to? But Hanegraaff's book, The Apocalypse Code, is in response to the Left Behind series. And he says that all of the events in the Revelation took place before 70 A.D., So they come up with very different interpretations as they approach Revelation. So let me give you four approaches to the Revelation. You want to understand these. The first is called the idealist view, or what is sometimes called the spiritual view. The idealist view says that the book of Revelation is just a book of good and evil, that there's no time frame. It's not referring to events in the past. It's not referring to events in the future. It's just giving us spiritual principles for living. And so they approached the Bible allegorically. One of the uh, late church fathers, and he was unique in his own right, his name was Origen. And he came up with the allegorical interpretation of Scripture. And unfortunately, Augustine adopted his view. When you allegorize a text of Scripture, you don't take it for its plain truth. You say, well, it says this, but this is what it really means. And of course, a lot of liberals in our day who at least say maybe, some of them, most just outright deny the authority of the Bible, but some who say it's inspired, they very typically interpret the Bible allegorically. Why? Because they can make the Bible say whatever they want it to say. And so the battles that we will see in the Revelation are not real literal battles. Those are spiritual battles that the believer faces. And um, it, the, the, the various kingdoms are uh, satanically inspired political kingdoms, but not future kingdoms out there in the future. The problem with that right off is the book opens on the third verse by telling us that the Revelation is a prophecy. And the book ends in 22.18, a few verses before the close, and it tells us that this book is a prophecy. Prophecy is about the future. This is not some allegory. And I hope to demonstrate before we're done that the method of interpretation that this group uses, as the other two groups, denies the method that Jesus uses. How do we know which group is right? How do you know how to interpret the Bible? You know, some people say, well, that's just your interpretation. Well, sometimes it just is someone's interpretation, and it's the wrong interpretation. So how do you know to correctly interpret the Bible, especially end times futuristic literature? Well, you look for models, and God gave us models. The way Jesus interpreted prophecy, the way the apostles interacted with prophecy, the way we even saw the way Daniel acted, uh, entertained prophecy in the Old Testament. Remember, he's there in Babylon, and he's reading Jeremiah, the 25th chapter, that describes a 70-year period. When Jeremiah wrote it, it hadn't even happened yet. He's warning the southern two tribes that God is going to bring uh, the Babylonians, and he's going to carry them away and, into judgment. And he says that that carrying away period will be for 70 years. So Daniel's reading 
the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, oh, we're in the 67th year. It's almost over. How did he believe that prophecy? Literally. And so if the prophets of old literally, plainly interpreted prophecy, if Jesus did it that way, if the apostles did it that way, that's how I'm going to take it. To listen again to today's message, The White Horse of Deception, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV14. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at the white horse of deception. Join us then as we search the scriptures.